Good morning. So um, t- today for me is kind of bittersweet uh, because we're ending this um, series in Acts. Anybody know how long we've been in here? Actually five, but you're close. Yeah, so it started the very first Sunday in May. It's the last Sunday in September. Five months we've spent here in Acts. Um, and I'm... I'm I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed this series, hearing the different perspectives from different people. Um, I've enjoyed getting to, to share some of those, but uh, this is the last one. And just so you know, the, the reading was from 28. We're doing 27 and 28. I had him read 28 specifically because I'm not going to spend as much time in 28. I'm going to spend a little more time in 27, um, not really verse by verse. If we went verse by verse, we'd be here for a long time. Um, and we're not going to do that. And by the way, there are extra notes in your, uh, in your bulletin, like a center page in, that, in, in the normal notes. Uh, and that was just to keep the sermon shorter, a couple of things that I thought were important that I've, I'm like, well, I could just write that and not actually preach it. So hopefully that'll save a, a little bit of time. All right, let's pray. Father, as we approach your word today, we're asking that you would, um, as you are so good at, speak into our hearts and our, our minds Lord, would you, would you adjust our thinking? Would you, would you cause us to, to, as we leave this place, think differently and act differently as a result because of what we hear today from you? And Lord, we trust you to do that because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna just kind of point out a couple of things here at the beginning and then we'll, we'll actually get into the text a little bit more. In verse one, we meet a man named Julius. He is a centurion. And pretty quickly, we find out that, that Paul gains some recognition from Julius. In verse three, it says, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. He certainly didn't need to let Paul go. Probably didn't do that with the others, but there, apparently Julius saw something in Paul, recognized something, now, I would suggest that, that Julius probably sent a soldier along with Paul. He probably didn't let him go off on his own. But there was some kind of connection there already. And that's important. We're going we're gonna to see that as we, we go through. We're going to come back to that. And, and I think also that we need to note right from the outset that, that Jews in general were not a seafaring people. You know, aside from Noah and his family, how many boat builders can you name me in the Old Testament? Yeah, there aren't any at all. Zero. Okay. So, you know, it, it, honestly, if you read the Old Testament, the, the sea from the, the, the Israelite perspective was something at best to be uncomfortable with and at worst to be feared. So they're, they're, that's just not their, their uh, most comfortable place. All right, but Paul, on the other hand, he was kind of an oddity. And by this point, Paul had been on and off more ships than most Israelites had probably ever seen, all right? And... and He's already been shipwrecked three times. I got to think that most people don't survive one shipwreck, let alone three, and soon to be four. He spent a day and a night in the sea, apparently because of one of those shipwrecks. He had traveled extensively by by sea. And after what he's experienced, you know, I got to think that Paul would not be... All right, if it was me, I wouldn't be too keen on getting onto another ship. This would not be a, a real high point for me. And, and based on his experience, he knows. You know, he's going from, from one of the outermost points of the empire to the capital city. 
this is going to be a really long trip. This is going to be a long voyage. It's going to uh, take a lot of time. It's going to include numerous different ships in this whole thing. You know, if, if I'm him, I'm not too excited about this. But Paul doesn't seem the least bit deterred at all. And I'm not suggesting that Paul could have said, you know, if he, if he didn't like the idea, he could have said, no, I'm not going. I mean, he's a prisoner, right? Um, but he doesn't seem at all apprehensive. He's not freaking out about it. And I would suggest that it's because Paul knows that God is with him. Regardless of what he's going through, Paul knew that already. All right, now I want to start, and that's going to come into play later too, so I, that's why I wanted to set that up at the beginning. All right, um, I want to start getting into the text here, and, and I'll say this more than once, that I really like Luke's writing, his storytelling, if you will. You know, when, the, when this sea journey begins, we can already feel the, the threatening tone in the words that Luke uses. Let me just read you, a, you know, several different places here. The winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. The wind did not allow us to go farther, coasting along it with difficulty. Since so much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, over and over, even before Paul's prediction, we get this, this ominous, threatening tone like something's going to happen. There should be this like scary music in the background going on while this is being... And, and, then, and then Paul gives his prediction, uh, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And, and even though... Uh, Paul had gained some recognition from Julius. At that point, Julius decided to listen to people he thought were more uh, credible in that situation. Um, and so he doesn't, he doesn't listen to Paul. But I, I love the way that Luke phrases it here, verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out, from, put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. If Luke is working a table in a casino, he is trying to get you, the reader, to bet against this voyage being successful on the chance that somehow this might work. And of course, we saw it coming. A great storm comes, strikes them. And again, I just like Luke's writing. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, apparently implying that they had not obtained, but they supposed they had, they thought they had. Just when everything seems calm, the storm descends on them, right? And this is a, this is a big ship, and they're out there getting tossed around. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They're, they're throwing cargo overboard. That's the point of the voyage, you know, they'll take some passengers, but the, the, what they're really doing is, is moving cargo from point A to point B. And if they're throwing the cargo overboard, this is a pretty serious thing. And then verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That's the, the, the hoists and the rigging that they use to get the, the cargo onto the ship. So now they're not just throwing other people's stuff overboard. They're throwing the stuff that goes with the ship overboard. You know, this is, this is getting worse by the moment. And, and you know, having thought that through, we should have anticipated that what, what the, it says in the next verse, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. We're, we're done. This is, this is over. We're, you know, we, we have, we have no, no, no chance here. 
But it does say right before that, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. So this isn't a few hours. This isn't just like a day kind of thing. Many days, no sun, no stars, constant storms for many days. This is a scary thing they're facing. And if we've been paying attention uh, when David Kreuter has preached, he has told us a number of times that we should be, be thinking, um, when have we seen this kind of thing before? What, was there another story in the Bible where somebody was on a ship and the sailors were, there was a storm and the sailors were scared and they're throwing stuff overboard? Anybody? Jonah, right, good. Um, but the, so, so the difference here though, see, I see this story with, with Paul as almost um, in many ways an opposite of that um, Think about, think about the, the reaction. Jonah's reaction. He is running away from what God wants him to do. Paul is fully embracing what God wants him to do. Jonah didn't want to go to those nasty Gentiles to tell them that there is a God who cares for them. You couldn't stop Paul from doing that. That's just who he is. Come hell or high water, pun intended, He's going to tell the gospel, right? He's going to share what, what God wants to do. So here's the deal. If you were to just read the story of Jonah, you could easily end up with the idea that if I refuse to follow God, then some calamity is going to befall me. But if you were to just read Acts 27 you could come to the conclusion that if I am wholeheartedly following God, some calamity is going to befall me. Are you with me? See, the reality is that we live in a sin-filled world. And sometimes bad things are going to happen. It's just the way it is. And then there's the, the, the angel who told Paul that he had to appear before Caesar. If you, if you understand what's going on in this section, this is really the, uh, what this whole, whole section is all about. It's about Paul getting to Rome. And it's going to happen regardless. God's hand is clearly in this whole thing. And I, I find it kind of humorous that in the midst of the storm, Paul says, men, you should have listened to me. I like Paul so much. He's a, he's a get-to-the-heart-of-the-matter kind of guy. I don't know why I would like that, right? And, and it's not lost on me that Paul did not include tact in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. You should have listened to me. He told you so. All right. He does list patience and kindness in the list of the, Holy, the fruits, fruit of the Spirit, right? So maybe Paul kind of overstepped here um, I, I, would, I would say this, you know, there, so much of the Bible is narrative, it's story, and oftentimes we want, to, we want to have good examples to follow, and there are those in the Bible, but a lot of times the characters that are in there are there so we can see ourselves. I'm just going to leave that one right there, you can do with that what you want to. And then uh, Paul tells them about the appearance of the angel the, uh, from the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Again, all the way through this thing, Paul has this unshakable confidence in God. 
He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, verse 25. He knows the promiser and he knows that the promiser is true to his word. And that, really that angelic visitation right there is the turning point in this story. You know, if you've never read this before, if you don't know this story, up until this point, we're still wondering, hey, what's going to happen? Are, are they going to get out of it? Is Paul going to make it through? What? But now, all of a sudden, Paul says, here's what he told me, and I believe it. Okay, now we know for sure what's going to happen. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, two weeks straight on a storm-tossed sea in the midst of violent storms on a wooden ship with hundreds of people who have given up hope. And you think you have problems. And, and I'd like to, I, I just like to point out here that I think that, that Paul is, is in this section, he's living out something that he wrote several years earlier to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Two chapters later, he says, the servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger as dying, and behold, we live. And we know that Paul had already gone through a lot of that stuff. He had, he had lived through it, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, but this almost feels prophetic to me as we look at what he's going through right here, right now. You know, yes, Paul, you've already gone through that, but hey, there, there's more coming. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. See, here's, here's the dilemma that I've encountered too often. And that is that many people, when they become Christians, they are told that once you're a believer, that it's going to be smooth sailing from now on. Everything's going to be good. And that's just not true. The book of Acts reminds us again and again and again that Jesus said that we would need to take up our cross. And that's usually not a smooth, shiny one. N.T. Wright said it this way, if the gospel of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, means anything at all, it means that those who carry it will have it branded into their souls. And he goes on to add this thought, the storms do not mean that the journey is futile. They, mean, they merely mean that Jesus is claiming the world as his own and that the powers of the world will do their best to resist. And it's true. And you and I have encountered those resistance powers at times. But guess what? You and I are ultimately on the winning side. Amen. All right, keep going here. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. I don't know about you, but again, I appreciate good storytelling, story writing, and acts. This true story has more plot twists in it than anything I could have come up with. Um, you know, just when we're starting to think that this nightmare is over because the, the storm has passed, just when we think they're, they're going to survive, now the soldiers want to kill Paul and the other prisoners. But Julius says no. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who 
could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Julius, again, recognized there was something about Paul that he wanted to take care of. So he lets Paul and the others try to make it to shore on their own. And I will add that this was a really big deal. I mean, if this doesn't work out, Julius could lose his own life. So clearly, Paul has, has gained a, a dimension of respect, a level of respect that, that is, is pretty high in Julius's mind. And let me add that that respect has come about because of Paul listening to Holy Spirit and acting in a godly manner. Those are things that we would all do well to emulate. All right, I'd like to show you something in this, this chapter that I think is, is significant. Um, and we're going to kind of hit back some, some verses that we've jumped over. Verse 20, when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The word saved there is important. Now, we as Christians, we use that word, we're talking about eternity, okay? But that word is not always, it is about eternity, but it's not always about eternity. Think back to the Philippian jailer when he was panicking because he thought everybody escaped and he asked uh, Paul and Silas, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? He's not talking about eternity there. He's, he's, he's talking about his neck. He's, he's concerned. And so that, that's, um, that's the idea here. Um, saved. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Same word. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. That word strength there is actually a, another form of that same word that was translated as saved in those last two verses. I mean, we could literally translate this as I urge you to take some food for it will be for your salvation. Verse 43, but the centurion wishing to save Paul, same word, and then verse 44, and so it was that all were brought safely to land, different form of the same word again. All right, I showed you those because if you remember, David Kreuter has told us that we should watch for recurring words or recurring phrases, right? Now, we're, because this is different, we're translating it and it doesn't come across the same all the time. We're not going to see it, but I'm helping us here to see this. Same word, different forms, over and over in just this short time. It's being repeated again and again. I don't think that was by accident. God is bringing them, specifically Paul, to a, a place of safety, through the waters to safety. They're being saved. They're receiving salvation, if you will. Think about it. That was, that was Noah's story. That was Moses' story. That was the Exodus story, the, the, the greater one there. That, that was Jonah's story. And it's Paul's story here, and it's your story and mine, rescued, saved by the grace of God. Not because of anything we did, but in his mercy, he has saved us. All right, now we finally get to chapter 28. And they're finally on shore, the island of Malta. And one of the first things I find interesting here, you know, again, if we went verse by verse about everything, it would take forever. So I'm just kind of picking some highlights that struck, stuck out to me. Um, one of the things that I found interesting is the word natives there. The Greek word is barbaroi, and it specifically refers to non-Greek-speaking Gentiles. All right? See, up until now, when we've encountered Gentiles, they've always been the Greek-speaking people under the, 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 the Greek influence, all right? Um, but these are different. They are, the, the etymology of the word is where we get our word barbarian, 
from, all right? They're not civilized in terms of the Greek culture. Now, the text never says that Paul preached the gospel there on Malta, but this is Paul. So clearly he did, all right? Uh, you know, if he's, if he's healing people, he's going to be preaching the gospel. In, in fact, if you were to go to Malta even today, if you were to sail to Malta, you would probably go ashore by way of St. Paul Bay. His influence has lasted for a really, really long time. And all, all of that to say that, that this is a different people group than we have seen before. And that shouldn't surprise us because we are told that Every nation, every tribe, every language is going to stand before the Lord. Don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing all those different people from all those different backgrounds. And, and I'd like to point out something else that I thought was significant as I looked at this section of Scripture. Um, most theologians would tell you that Paul, by this point in his life, is probably around 60 years old. Might be a little bit more, might be not quite there, but somewhere around that that general age. And he has had a very hard life. You know, we already talked about the shipwrecks, but think back through uh, the, 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 the chapters leading up to this one of the stuff that we've seen Paul go through, the riots that he has been in, the, the beatings, the whippings that he's gotten, stoned and left for dead. Paul has had a pretty hard life. Anybody here even close to what he's gone through? Yeah, I'm not. And and, and then he's just come off of this, this harrowing experience, two weeks, two weeks on a ship that he sure is going to go down, storm-tossed, and then a shipwreck. You know, I got to think that most people at that point are going are gonna to say, I, I just want to take it easy. I just want to relax a little bit. And, and, and think about the, the people there on Malta they were showing them unusual kindness. So they built a fire and they, you know, they're probably fixing them food. I got to think, if I am Paul, you know, no longer as young as I used to be, and having gone through what he's gone through, I got to think the temptation is, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kick back here. I'm going to relax. I'm going to take it easy. But what's Paul doing? He's gathering wood for the fire. He's working. He didn't need to do that. I think he's following Jesus' example of being a servant. People wouldn't have expected it, but that's what he was doing. I'm guessing that in humility, Paul was probably counting others as more significant than himself, like he wrote to the church at Philippi. Do you and I do that? Are we more apt to serve than to be served? Getting quiet in here. Apparently what Paul did. All right, then there's the whole thing with the viper. And, you know, I, I, I looked at a number of different commentaries and, and some commentators said this is, is hugely significant that it's a snake. Others said, mm, maybe not. Uh, I personally think it is. See, I... I did a little research to find out what other kind of animals, there were. I, this is just my, the way my brain works, guys, sorry. What other kind of animals there were there on the island of Malta. And I find it interesting that Paul was not attacked by a, a swarm of Maltese honeybees 
or some Maltese goats, there were probably thousands of them in the island at the time, or even a Sicilian shrew, which is a little tiny mammal that, uh, although it's probably not lethal, its bite is venomous, so it's super painful. He wasn't attacked by any of those things or any number of other possibilities. He was attacked by a snake, a, a viper. And I'm reading this, and I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I just, my vivid imagination, I'm, I'm just picturing the, the snake clasping onto his hand, and Paul is thinking, after what I've gone through for the last two weeks of the, 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 the storms and the people without hope and the, the shipwreck, and, and Satan, this is the, the best you got to offer? <laughs> Get out of here. I think it's hugely symbolic there. And, and, and the, the people of the island are sure that Paul must be a murderer, right? Because he escaped the sea and ultimately he is going to get what, what's coming to him. And, and let me point out here that the, the, the word that's translated justice, I don't know if you noticed it on the screen, but it's capitalized. It, it's actually a, a Greek word, DK. DK, and it's, it's a divine name in the original language, which is why it's capitalized. It's the personification of a goddess, a goddess of justice or revenge. So it's more likely that people were not thinking this is karma, he's getting what he deserves. They're thinking this goddess of justice is coming to give justice where it wasn't served. And Paul says, get off of me. His God is clearly greater than DK. So he shakes the snake off, and now they think he's a God. Where have we seen that one before? Yeah, back in Acts 14 in, in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, they all thought he was a God. And then Paul heals uh, Publius's father. I don't know about you, but that reminds me a lot of when uh, Jesus healed um, Peter's mother-in-law, right? And, and all of these people came because he had done that. Same thing here. All these people came because he had done that. Uh, the, you know, signs and wonders are going to get the, 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 the acknowledgement, the attention of the outsiders, no question. And they're there on Malta for three months, it says. Okay? So, so think about that opening scene with the, 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 the welcome, the fire, the, the snake. How long did that take? Maybe several hours at most, okay? So then there's this next paragraph, and that's the whole thing. So three months they're there on that island, and that's all we know is, is what it says right there. I want you to understand that when we're reading um, here in the book of Acts, and lots of other places in Scripture, but, but when we're reading here in the book of Acts, that we're just getting little snippets. We're not getting the whole story. This is like the, the Reader's Digest condensed version, all right, for those of you that would know what that is. Um, uh, just, just little pieces. I'd like to read the whole story sometime. I think it'll be fascinating, but we're only getting small parts of the whole story. So finally, they're able to continue their journey. Uh, various stops along the way. They finally get to Rome. And as they're going into Rome, apparently word gets out that Paul is coming and lots of people come to greet him. Um, they had, had received his letter that said that he was coming. And so they're excited. Paul's actually here now. And what has been Paul's custom when he goes into a new city? Where does he go first? To the synagogue, right. And so, so that's, that's what Paul would like to do, but he doesn't have the freedom. You know, he, he has some freedom, uh, but 
he, he can't just go wherever he wants to. And so he does the next best thing. He invites the Jewish leaders to come to him. And, of course, Paul explains why he's there, okay? But then he goes and he does what Paul always did. Verse 23, from morning till evening, the, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. It's what he's done in every city where he has been previously. He's showing them carefully that the Jewish Bible points to Jesus. And it does. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And then Paul once again gives us another lesson in how to win friends and influence people. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made the one statement the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That last verse in the message translation says, you've had your chance. The non-Jewish outsiders are next on the list. And believe me, they're going to receive it with open arms. What did I say earlier about tact? <laughs> but but I, I can't, honestly, I can't fault Paul here because he's quoting from Isaiah chapter six. And that same quotation is used in, in various amounts of it in all four gospels. There aren't many things that are in all four gospels, but that one is in all four gospels. And you know who's talking. It's Jesus. And so, you know, he's, Paul's in good company in saying these words. But I do want to point out that it does say that some of the Jews there believed. They, they, they believed what they heard. Um, so it, it did fall not totally on deaf ears. Now, your Bible probably goes from verse 28 to 30. <clears throat> There's a footnote in my Bible that says some manuscripts add verse 29 and when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. That's not in the oldest manuscripts, okay? Which is why it's not in many of our Bibles. If you're using the King James, when the King James Version was done, they didn't have the oldest manuscripts. They had some that were newer. That's what they used. That verse is in there. That's why your Bible probably doesn't have that verse. Just wanted you to understand what's going on there. And then the ending. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's the, it's the ending that leaves us hanging. So many unanswered questions. Don't, don't you what, wonder what happens next? You know, personally, I'm still wondering what happened to Peter the guy that the Roman Catholic Church says is the head of the church, we haven't even heard from him since chapter 12. What happened to him? What happened to Barnabas? What happened to people like Priscilla and Aquila and John Mark? And what happens to Paul? We're just kind of left hanging. Well, I can tell you from tradition that um, according to tradition, Paul died in Rome as a martyr. Now, I wanted to, to check that out because I've heard that for a long time. And best evidence seems to indicate, we don't have any eyewitness verification of that, all right? But best evidence seems to indicate that. But I also found out some other interesting information. I'm just going to share one quote with you. Um, I, I did find this in many different places, and you can check it out yourself. This is from John Chrysostom, 5th uh, century church father. 
He wrote this, two years then Paul passed bound in Rome, then he was set free, then having gone into Spain, he saw Jews also in like manner, and then he returned to Rome where he was slain by Nero. So I'm not saying this is definitely true, but again, I found this in more than one, one uh, source. It sounds like Paul was there in Rome, he went to Spain. We talked about that last time I preached. Remember, he wrote that in, in his letter to the Roman church that he was planning on coming to visit them and then he was planning to go on to Spain. It sounds like that happened. Like that Spain was the, if you remember, the most western point of the known world at that point. He wanted to take it to the, end, the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sounds like it might have happened. And then came back to Rome and was martyred. All right, but we're still left with this, this dangling ending. Shouldn't there be more of a wrap-up? Shouldn't there be some tying up of loose ends? Well, yes, unless... Have you ever watched a movie and it kind of leaves you hanging at the end? I don't know about you, but when I have that happen, my normal reaction is, I, I think there must be a sequel coming. Am I the only one that thinks like that? And so I'm reading this ending in Acts and I think there must be a sequel. And there is. It's you and me. It's the church. You and I are the sequel of what's going on. And I hear people today saying that the church is in trouble because of all the stuff going on in our culture. There's lots of problems and we could be in trouble. You know, let me just give you some some quick examples. You, you probably heard about the pastor in Canada that got arrested during COVID because he refused to stop meeting. Um, he, he knows that the Bible says to not forsake assembling together, and so he was, he was doing what Scripture said. He was still bringing his people together. The Canadian government didn't like that. They arrested him. Or two weeks ago, I, I read about a, a Christian teacher in Ireland who was jailed for refusing to use a, a student's preferred pronouns. Or just last week, a, a chaplain at a Church of England church school, get that, a Church of England church school was fired because he affirmed the historic position of the church about gender. He recognized that God created two genders, male and female, and he was fired for that. See, those types of stories can can suggest that we as the church are in trouble, that there's, there's a problem, that we, we might have difficulties going forward. I want to give you a different perspective. I was first introduced to a man named Mark Naroth through a teaching that he did about the Nicene Creed. Now, you might be going, a teaching about the Nicene Creed. Mark Naroth was as passionate teaching about the Nicene Creed as anything, anybody I've ever heard teach about anything. I was dumbfounded. And he is a historian, and during what he was sharing, he shared a number of, of, of points from history about the church. And I'm, I'm thinking, I need to video interview this guy. And so I got a hold of him, and he, Mark graciously said, yes, let's do it. So I'm going to play you just a short segment of that video interview that I did with Mark. Would you? Uh... You know, I hear from people, we shouldn't call the church the church. That's just a religious 
a religious word, right? That the, the, if you're trying to translate ecclesia, the Greek word, we, we tran- usually translate church into English, it, it should be congregation or, or, or called out or anything, anything but church. And, uh, you know, I, I read Kini Greek, and uh, that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard, just to, just to be completely honest. Like, there's, yes, ecclesia means called out. It means a congregation. But language does not exist in a vacuum. And there's actually a story behind this word church, why we use this word church in English, and not just congregation, ecclesia, the, 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 you know, a, a group of people, because anything can be an ecclesia, but there's this one thing called the church. And it's, it's, actually, it's actually kind of a loan word from Anglo-Saxon. And if you think about it in the Middle Ages, it, it, it basically means the Lord's house. But think about what the Anglo-Saxons were doing in the Middle Ages. They weren't going to church to worship God. They were going to church to burn them to the ground, to, to rape and pillage those churches. And so today, when we say that word church, it's reminding us This is the institution that Christ built. This is the institution that nothing can conquer, that nothing can defeat, that was founded 2,000 years ago and is still here today and will be here long beyond us. So every time I say the word church, it's like that, remember the Alamo, like what happened in the past and what does that mean for us going forward? You know, my book, Tom, is about the Nicene Creed. It took 10 years to write this book. And there was one line in the creed the first time I heard it that just captivated my imagination. It's it's, it's toward the end. It's, I believe in the church. Now, usually there are some other adjectives in there, the four marks of the church. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But let's, let's forget those for a second. It's, I believe in the church. Now, it's easy to say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Bible. But I believe in the church. I believe in a a group of Christians, a group of flawed people who very often hurt me. Like, that is a hard, hard, hard thing to say. But do we believe in it? Because I think, I think a lot of the issues we're seeing in the church today show, no, we don't. We think the church is going to fail just as much as we think any other institution is going to fail. We approach it just like we approach civil government or, or any other uh, uh, you know, large corporations, any other massively flawed institution. Um, you know, I actually um, have because I'm weird. I have some coins I'd, I'd like to show you here to kind of illustrate this example of believing in the church. This is a Roman denarius. It was minted in 71 AD. Uh, the emperor Vespasian is on the front, and on the back is Mars, the, you know, the god of war. Now, 
the historian Josephus tells us that the year this coin was minted, Vespasian's son Titus held a triumph, a, 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 a parade in the city of Rome celebrating his victory over Jerusalem. Basically, T Titus just leveled the city of Jerusalem in the year 70. The next year, this coin was minted. He held a parade. And he marched, Josephus tells us, the, the scrolls from the temple through the streets of Rome. When this coin was minted, the Bible was literally a spoil of war. All right? Now, I have another coin. It's a thousand years later, but it's still Roman. Today we might call this a, a Byzantine coin, but, but they didn't call themselves that. They called themselves Roman. So this is a Roman coin, but it doesn't have the emperor on the front and it doesn't have the god Mars on the back. Instead, Jesus is on the front of this coin and he's holding the book of the gospels in one hand and in the other he's, you know, uh, blessing the people. And then on the back, there's an abbreviation in Greek. And I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus Christos Nika. Jesus Christ Victor. Now, this is the same country, but it's an entirely different culture. Why? There's only one difference between this coin and this one. This culture where for entertainment they threw people to the lions and this culture where that's completely existent, where this culture where you abort your children and this one where it's gone. What is the difference between these two things? It's one thing, it's the church. Do we believe in the church? Do we believe that the church can succeed? Jesus said, I will build my church. It's not up to us. It's up to him. Let me, let me take uh, Mark's idea here and put it into a little more modern context. Um, we know from history that the first Christian Protestant missionaries went into the nation of China almost 200 years ago. In 1953, all Christian missionaries were booted out of the country. There were a lot of works that were going on there. Apparently somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 believers at that point. It's not a drop in the bucket, but China's a pretty big nation. And the people that were kicked out hoped and prayed that somehow their work would continue without them. But they had no word. It was closed off totally. How could they possibly have known what you and I know almost 70 years later? The conservative estimates are that there are 100 million believers in China today. And some say as many as 200 million. Jesus said, I will build my church He's doing that even now. See, he's the real hero of the story. The story in China, the story that Mark told, the story that we've been looking at here in the book of Acts. The book of Acts isn't about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about Luke, the, the writer. It's about Jesus. And according to my Bible, 
he is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was the Lord who empowered each one of them and it is the same Lord who empowers you and me to carry out our mission. And he continues that now and into the future to empower his church. He hasn't stopped doing what he did in the book of Acts. His power has not diminished. Oh yeah, the church may set, suffer some setbacks just like they did in the book of Acts. Totally get it, all right? But his word will still accomplish what he sends it forth to do. The Lord is still ruling and reigning on his throne. He is still in charge. His church is not left empty and impotent. Daryl shared earlier that when we're born again, that the Lord changes our trajectory. That's the same thing that happened with those, those early disciples. Their lives were changed because of his power, the power of his resurrection at work within them, the Holy Spirit at work within them. And that same power is empowering you and me today. That has not changed and it will not change ever. We, the church, are on the winning side. You and I and the church as a whole are the sequel to the book of Acts. And I, for one, expect to see God working in and through us, just like he did those disciples back there. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are ultimately the one who is working in and through us. We're grateful that you are empowering us. Lord, may we never lose sight of that. May we never think that we have to do it on our own because we don't. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us these, these lessons to see of how you worked powerfully through your disciples in the past. And Lord, we know that you desire to do that same thing today. You're still the same. And so we're asking that we would more and more have that vision of seeing you working in and through us just like you did those disciples back there. We're trusting you to do that, God, because you are ever faithful. 